Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have the pleasure of having Dr. Malcolm Kendrick on. He is all the way across the pond in England, I believe, and he will do a better job of introducing himself. I am going excited to talk about his book, As the Clot Thickens. We're going to be talking about um, heart attacks and cardiovascular disease and what is the real cause of them. So, Dr. Kendrick, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, I am uh, I am in sunny. Although I am initially Scottish, you'll be glad to know, uh, I do now live in England, just south of Manchester, where I uh, still work as a, as a family physician. And uh, I do, do other things as well. I also do a lot of research into cardiovascular disease, which I've done for the last 40 years or so. So, uh, so, uh, so I'm now trying to work off twenty thousand million calories from from uh, from various uh, dinners and lunches over the over the period. <laughs> right, right. Getting out for a walk in a hugely windy, windswept country, but not not the weather you've had. Uh, just just very very wet and windy here. Yeah. Well, isn't that kind of usual for your area? Uh, yeah, well, wet and windy is pretty much what we get. Yeah, right. <laughs> nasty weather comes all the way over the Atlantic from you and arrives at us. And then uh, we get a bit of American leftovers usually from here. <laughs> well, we have, if you've been following the weather in the United States, we've had some uh, r- uh, really bad snowstorms and cold weather across the nation. Canceled flights. The yeah. air tra- air travel has been a nightmare. So oh, no. I don't know if that's affected you guys over uh, no, in England we- or not. We had it very cold just before Christmas. Uh, in fact, my brother lives in uh, in Ottawa, in uh, or just near between Ottawa and um, between Ottawa and um, um, Toronto. Um, he just missed the, the very worst of it. He lives in the country, so so I'm I'm aware that it's been a bit chilly. <laughs> right. So tell us a little bit about um, your book, The Clot Thickens. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me why are you interested in, in heart disease and, and, and um, what happened? Well, it happened many, many years ago when I was a medical student in, in Scotland, where at the time, Scotland had the highest rate of heart disease in, in the world. It, well, that's what everyone said. It may even be true. I found one thing about medical statistics is you have to look at them about 500 times to find out if they're true or not. But it was definitely very high. So uh, really, the, the rate in the early 1980s was it was around about six times what it is now. It has fallen and fallen, uh, as it's done in many countries in Western Europe. But, of course, when that when you're training as a doctor and that's the number one health condition that there is, and you're just seeing people coming all the time, you, you think, well, what is it? Now, like everybody else, I mean, I was being taught that it's cholesterol and it's diet and it's too much fat in the diet, the terrible Scots diet and all the nasty things that we eat, and that's what's causing our heart disease rate. And that was pretty much pretty much the story. And I suppose, you know, um, you're being bombarded with so many facts. You don't think, well, this is clearly nonsense. It just comes in. But but I also happened to uh, travel to France quite a lot. Uh, I like France. And, and one thing I knew about the French was they sure don't hold back on saturated fat consumption. Uh, in right. fact, um, the data... At the time, when I looked at it, was that the French had the highest saturated fat consumption in Europe and the lowest rate of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and it, in fact, it was it was higher than the Scots, and their cholesterol level was slightly higher than the Scots. And if you looked at all the things 
They smoked more. They exercised less. I'm not quite sure whether I believe that or not. The rate of diabetes was the same. In fact, every factor between the Scots and the French was virtually identical, except that the French uh, maybe had slightly worse risk factors. So there was more smoking and slightly more diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the rate of heart disease was, was one-fifth one fifth of that in Scotland. So you start looking at information like that, and you think, well, mm, it's not really adding up, is it? So I began to think, well, well, I still at that time believed that cholesterol caused heart disease because um, I hadn't really thought about it very much, and superficially it makes sense. You know, you, you get cholesterol and you get more cholesterol mm-hmm. in your bloodstream and it somehow or other gets into the arteries and then it thickens them up and then you get heart disease. Now, like a lot of things, um, I think it was H.L. Mencken, a very famous American um, who I quite like, who said, for every complicated solution, there's an answer that's simple, easy to understand and wrong. Um, but I, I began looking at it and I, and I started to then question the whole thing. Well, if saturated fat isn't the cause of heart disease and cholesterol and diet isn't the cause of heart disease, uh, then how how is it still that we think that cholesterol is the cause of heart disease as all these things are supposed to be linked together? But of course, the cholesterol hypothesis during the 80s became much, much more powerful. And then statins launched in the late 80s, 1987, I think was the first launch. I might have got that wrong. And um, and then really all all of the, the money and all of the... Ooh, we just lost him. Did we lose Dr. Kendrick? Well, as we work to get him back on, um, so Janet, kind of follow up with what he's saying about statins and cardiovascular disease. Well, I'm I'm hearing him loud and clear because um, once we entered into pharmacy school, that was the narrative that we were taught, taught, excuse me, and I want to say that the pharmaceutical that came on board would have been Mevacor, is that correct? Yeah, Lovastatin. Lovastatin. It would have been late 80s, yes. And the whole uh, research behind it that we were taught was is that it was the consumption of fat. So we were supposed to train our patients to eat a low-fat diet, high-carb, and small-protein diet. So basically, we went on all carbs and not that I am opposed to carbohydrates. It's just that the ratio of it just changed dramatically. And that was supposed to solve the cardiovascular problem caused by cholesterol. And and literally, you know, we were recommended, if you look at the food pyramid back in the 80s, um, we were recommended to eat 80% carbohydrates. And, and here's what I have to say about cholesterol and heart attacks. So the statins have been out for over 30 years right. since the, the 80s. And cardiovascular disease is now the number one killer of Americans. Right. So, and yet almost probably 50% of the population seems to be on statins. So if statins are working, then how come cardiovascular disease is still killing everybody? So um, I don't think it's about cholesterol. I don't think statins are are helpful. Um, we have a comment from... James Genevant, then there's Dr. Kendrick back. Go ahead and show our comment first and go ahead and let Dr. One of my favorite doctors, awesome. So he's trying to get back in. It looks like um, we'll, we'll, we'll work on him. Thank you, James, for the comment. Uh, yeah, great guy. As you know, James, 
uh, saturated fat is not the enemy when it comes to heart attacks, cardiovascular disease, and cholesterol definitely isn't either. Um, we all, you know, if you look at the history of what we ate as hunters and gatherers, we ate mostly animal fat, animal meat, so protein and fat from animals, and we didn't die of heart attacks. So another comment we can answer while we're working on getting Dr. Kendrick in. Life's observation with 25 grams of carbs every four hours, not to exceed 100 grams of carbs a day. Uh, from Amy. So great comment, Amy. Um, you know, to me, that honestly sounds like a lot of carbs if you're not an athlete or you're not working out a lot. Um, and especially if you're eating 25 grams every four hours. Um I don't think we really need to fuel our bodies that much unless we're really, really active. Um, if you've watched one of our podcasts about opt, about intermittent fasting, um, I think mostly when you look at the history of how we used to eat as hunters and gatherers, we were mostly fasting throughout most of the day and we wouldn't eat big meals maybe once, maybe, maybe even two or three times a week. So, um, when we had a big hunt. So, uh, eating 25 grams of carbs every four hours, I don't believe for most people would be a good idea. But you have to find out what diet works for you, and it's different for everybody. Janet, you have any comments on that? Yes, I do. So um, I'm I'm not in the hunter and gatherer view totally because I do think that we were able to store some of our food. I mean, my ancestors come from Scandinavian country where you know winter preserved a lot of food. So I think I think that kind of challenged it a little bit. But I do think that what we have forgotten is that our ancestors did survive on fat and proteins because carbs weren't always available. And if they did, they had to preserve them. So, and also our ancestors had to deal with, you know, whatever work that they were dealing with. So, you know, when I look at my ancestors, uh, especially on the farming and ranching side of it, you know, obviously their diet changed with their activity level. And as Americans, I don't know if we have embraced that. So, you know, when my father was, uh, you know, during harvest, and obviously they were going to have a higher caloric need. So I think that people, you know, lived in that that realm and that was part of life. You know, it's part of you know, you ate according to activity levels and what you were doing. So it looks like we're still trying to get Dr. Kendrick in. He can see us and hear us, I understand, but we can't see or hear him. Um, so let's answer. There he is. Dr. Kendrick. He's back. <laughs> there we are. Welcome back. <laughs> my, com my computer went blue screen on me, which hasn't happened for many years. And then <laughs> <Our back. laughs> the, the dreaded blue screen of death. Uh, it was. Well, I thought I'd go rid of it ever since I got rid of whatever it is, Windows 87 or something. Uh, I, think, I, think I'm on, I have no idea what I'm on now. But, uh, and it, I was just looking at it and went bang. And then it was gone. So, well, welcome it, back it, to it the show. Must, uh, it must be the cholesterol companies. <laughs> yeah, right. You were just about talking about that just when you're talking about. about the money and cholesterol <laughs> and and. Oh yeah. I, uh, yeah. I don't know how much you heard of what Janet and I talked about, but uh, I heard a little bit, and then I, I, I you couldn't hear me, so I had to come back out and then again. Yep. So, technology is wonderful when it works. Yeah. It does. Uh, it does. Uh, it does. Do you want me to just carry on or, or yeah, uh, carry on, please. Okay, sorry, yeah. So, uh, so obviously, um, I was talking about you know where my my ideas and cholesterol where to get come from, and um, um, in about the uh, 1990 or something, I was very much of the cholesterol 
as we know, there's no such thing as cholesterol in your bloodstream anyway. And uh, there's, there's, so, so the terminology is completely confusing. Um, but I thought I was probably the only person in the entire world who thought this. I could, it's like, there's me and there's all the other doctors and everybody else thinks that cholesterol causes heart disease and statin should be prescribed to everybody. And I was a kind of little lonely person sitting in a, in the wilderness beside my little campfire thinking, is there no one else in here? Here, And then um, I did actually meet up uh, online with, uh, there's a group that, that started off called the International Network of Cholesterol Skeptics, thinks, um, which was actually started by a Swedish doctor, Dr. Uffe Ravskov, who is a fantastic, brilliant guy. And he wrote uh, a book called The Cholesterol Myths, which was burnt, by the way, all live on the television studio in uh, in Denmark, I think it was, uh, just to give you some idea of how how rational the thinking is in this area, and and I did find that there were other people who were who were around who were thinking the same things, and in about two thousand and seven or something, I, I'd wrote I'd written a few papers about it all, and in two thousand and seven, I wrote a book called The Great Cholesterol Con, which is basically saying it's all nonsense, and and here's the data, and here's the information, and here's the facts, and. Uh, I followed that up with another book called Doctoring Data, which is how essentially how the pharmaceutical industry distorts old data. I wrote another book called um, called Statin Nation, which is a follow-up that I said I would write. And then I thought, well, I've spent enough time telling people what doesn't cause heart disease. And I had spent decades trying to work out what does cause heart disease. And um, then I realized that I was looking at things completely the wrong way. Uh, interestingly, yesterday, uh, a doctor from Dundee, a consultant anesthetist, wrote to me. Uh, he's just retired. And he said, when he was being taught about cardiovascular disease when he started medical school, which was in the late 1970s, that he was taught by a professor who said, it's all caused by blood clotting. It's a damage to the endothelium followed by blood clots, followed by fibrin, followed by the development of atherosclerotic plaques. So this was the dean of medicine in a Scottish university teaching what is essentially exactly the same thing as I talk about in the book. And when you go back and you look at it, you realize that over the years, there's been lots of people who have said the cholesterol hypothesis is not correct. This is what causes heart disease. It's got nothing to do with cholesterol. I mean, the idea itself, uh, you know, I've come to realize it was first proposed in 1852 by Dr. Rudolf Verko, who most mm. people have never heard of. Uh, sorry, Carl von Rokitansky. Rudolf Verko was the opposite guy. Um, Carl von Rokitansky, he said that when he looked at blood at atherosclerotic plaques, and yes, people were looking at atherosclerotic plaques in 1852 in Austria, he said these look like blood clots to me. They look like blood clots in various stages of repair and an alteration, metamorphosis in the word he used. He called it the encrustation hypothesis. And and so, yes, this is not a new idea. So I, I can't claim it's my idea. I'd like to, um, but I can't. And um, so it's 170, oh, it's 170 years old, this idea. So it, it precedes the cholesterol hypothesis by, by, by 100 years almost. Uh, well, not quite, but uh, I, I, I like to say that to people. So you're going to say, well, if it's not cholesterol, because the cholesterol hypothesis is, is very simple to understand. It's, it's that cholesterol, you eat 
saturated fat or cholesterol, the level in your blood rises. Well, we now know that none of that is actually true. And even if it is true, saturated fat and cholesterol in the diet have nothing to do with cardiovascular disease. Even the American Heart Association now accepts that. Uh, and they, they were the biggest promoters of the diet part of the hypothesis for 50 years, 60 years. So if it isn't that, it isn't that. What, what can cause a thickening and a fatty, as people have said, fatty lumps to build up in arteries? If it's not fat and it's not cholesterol, what can it be? And I think this was where, where Rokitansky uh, struggled to answer the, the question from Rudolf Verka, which is, well, actually, these fatty lumps and plaques that you see in arteries are underneath the lining of the artery itself. And you can't get blood clots underneath the lining of the artery itself because blood clots form within the blood. And this is outside of the bloodstream, if you like. And I think that knocked the theory on the head because he couldn't explain that. And 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 um, I think he kind of, Verkow sort of went, gotcha. Um, although Verkow, who's some people say was the father of the cholesterol hypothesis, never believed that cholesterol had anything to do with causing it. So slightly ironic, of course. So moving away from cholesterol altogether and saying, well, what is it that we're, what is it that we're looking at with heart disease? We are looking at, and, and I agree, most of what I'm going to say is in full agreement with what most researchers and medics say, which is do you start off with a small plaque, maybe something so small you can't even see it in the, in the blood vessel. And over the years, this grows and grows and grows. And eventually, if you like that, the, the blood vessel is, is, is 90% blocked. And eventually, a blood clot forms at that point, fully blocks the artery, and then you have a heart attack or a stroke or blood clots happening elsewhere in the body. So the actual process is, is sort of the same. It's just what causes all this to happen is is very different. And, and the medical profession accept that a heart attack and a stroke is primarily due to blood clotting. They also accept that blood clots that form in arteries that don't fully block the fully block the artery become incorporated into the artery wall and make plaques grow. So they accept that plaques grow through thrombus or blood clots forming on, on areas. And what they won't accept is that it starts that way as well. So if you like, it's a three-step process to clot. The, the plaque starts, it grows bigger, it eventually blocks. You know, the medical profession agrees sections two and three. You just want to accept that the first part is got anything to do with blood clotting. Oh, it's all to do with cholesterol. But, you know, you can't explain how that can happen. So so essentially what you say is, is can you explain all of the processes you see by looking at a different a different process, which is the first step, the first thing that happens with atherosclerotic plaques, which are the underlying thing that causes heart disease, is that a small blood clot forms on the artery wall. That's fine. And, and that's, you can see that that happens in places. Now, why would that happen? Well, that happens because the artery wall is lined with the thing called endothelium. And the endothelium is a single layer of cells that goes around lines all blood vessels not just arteries veins and capillaries and even the smallest blood vessels as well so and and the and the endothelium is also lined by another thing called the glycocalyx which if you speak to 100 doctors i'm going to guarantee one might have heard of the glycocalyx probably the most important single physiological aspect to cardiovascular disease that there is and the glycocalyx is you know if you try and pick up a fish 
most fish, try and pick up a shark, it doesn't happen. But if you pick up a normal fish and you try and grab hold of it, it slips out of your fingers. It's incredibly slippery. Why is it incredibly slippery? Because fish scales are covered in glycocalyx, which is basically glucose and protein in a kind of strands, like a little lawn. So all of your blood vessels have 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 a small lawn inside them. And this lawn protects the endothelial cells. It allows things like red blood cells to just move very smoothly through. So when you get to a capillary, which is, say, that size, and then a red red blood cell is is almost exactly the same size, they have to squeeze through the capillary. And one of the ways that this happens is because the glycocalyx allows this to, to go through. And without the glycocalyx, if the glycocalyx is damaged, then capillaries can become damaged. Very small blood vessels can become damaged. And, and although it's called a different thing, it's called peripheral vascular disease, the very small blood vessel damage, you can see in, say, diabetes, you look at the back of people's eyes and you can see damage to the capillaries, which shows up as burst capillaries, uh, capillaries that have, have widened and and and. and and, and formed aneurysms, etc., or they're just gone. So this peripheral artery disease is caused by damage to capillaries because the glycocalyx has been damaged. So if you want to look at what causes heart disease initially, you're going to ask yourself a question, what can damage the glycocalyx? Yeah. What damages it? And there's a whole series of things that can damage it. And obviously, smoking damages the glycocalyx. And smoking damages endothelial cells. So, you know, if you look at the the cholesterol hypothesis and say, well, how does it fit with smoking? Does cholesterol raise, does smoking raise your cholesterol level? No. Does does smoking do any of these things? No, it does. So smoking clearly causes heart disease, but how does it do it? And the answer is, if you smoke one cigarette, and they've shown this, and healthy volunteers have been asked to smoke one cigarette, and then they have measured damage to the endothelium. You can measure damage to the endothelium because a a dead endothelial cell releases what they call microparticles. And these microparticles basically say to you, endothelial cells have died somewhere in the cardiovascular system. If you smoke one cigarette, one healthy volunteer as a non-smoker, you can see a quick rise in endothelial cell death and microparticles in the bloodstream. And that's because smoke from a cigarette is so small it can travel out of your lungs and into your bloodstream. It's called nanoparticles. Nanoparticles enter your bloodstream and bump up against the endothelium and start killing off endothelial cells. Now, normally what happens is this is repaired quite quickly, very quickly, by cells called endothelial progenitor cells. Floating in your bloodstream are, are, are the cells that become new endothelial cells. And if you smoke a cigarette, not only do the microparticles go up, these endothelial progenitor cells go up in number. So the bone marrow starts to produce the repair system very rapidly to cover over the areas of damage. So you can get away the smoking for quite some time because, yes, you're damaging the arteries, you're damaging the endothelium, but the body starts replacing it and covering it over. So you're getting tiny little areas of endothelial damage. Obviously, the more you smoke, and if you smoke and you do other things that damage the endothelium, then you're going to have a double whammy on your hands. So other things that can damage the glycocalyx, and one of the worst for this is a raised blood sugar level. Mm-hmm. There's whatever reason is that high glucose levels in your blood strip the glycocalyx down, and you can actually see this happening. There's a device you can put under your tongue, 
which has recently, fairly recently been invented, which looks at the thickness of your glycocalyx in the blood vessels in your tongue. And this is one place where they're they are actually exposed to, to view quite easily. And you can see that if people's blood sugar levels go up, the glycocalyx thins quite quickly and then repairs itself. Because this is a very quickly repairing substance. It can the entire glycocalyx can be stripped off and repaired in one second less than one second so it's a very dynamic process that's going on so you can say well how does diabetes cause heart disease how does smoking cause heart disease well you look at the glycocalyx and the endothelium and you can see that they are both damaging exactly the same thing and so they're both doing exactly the same thing although they appear hugely different cigarette smoking and diabetes how do you link them that was interesting when I was actually writing the book. I was writing a section on um, on um, autoimmune diseases, um, which also increase the risk of heart disease. And you say, well, how does an autoimmune disease do this? Well, autoimmune diseases quite often is the body attacking itself. And one bit of the body that is often attacked is the vascular system. So you have a thing called the vasculitis. So systemic lupus erythematosus, which many people have heard of, but no one knows what it actually is, usually not even doctors, is that um, in systemic lupus erythematosus, young women who have this condition have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease of 5,000%. Wow. Now, that's a proper increase in risk. You say, well, how does it happen? Well, about 50% of people who have SLE, or there's more women than men, also have a thing called antiphospholipid syndrome alongside APS. Now, again, most people have never heard of APS, but APS, the phospholipids are what your cell membranes are made of, primarily. Two phospholipids back-to-back forms a cell membrane. So you can imagine if the body decides it doesn't like phospholipids very much and starts attacking them, then, then endothelial cells are going to get a pretty good hammering pretty quickly, and they do. You can get antiphospholipid syndrome Separate to systemic lupus erythematosus, it's a condition, it's called Hughes' disease. And these people die quite young of heart disease, heart attack, strokes, blood clots forming all over the body. Now, when I was writing this, I was also writing about viruses because the influenza virus can attack the endothelium. Well, it attacks the endothelium, it gets into the endothelial cells. Then the body says, I don't like this virus in these endothelial cells, so it starts attacking them. So once the body starts to attack its own endothelial cells, then you get blood clots forming because you're stripping off the endothelium here, there, and everywhere. And while I was writing this, COVID came along. And and people were saying, oh, we've got this condition where you get a sort of widespread um, immune reaction causing uh, a thing like uh, causing, causing blood clots around the system. How can this possibly happen? I said, well, what happens is the COVID gets into your lungs the virus then gets into your bloodstream. It then goes straight into your because because it goes it, it, it the COVID virus needs a thing called an ACE2 inhibitor to enter cells. And ACE2 inhibitors are very uh, are found in endothelial cells and lung tissue primarily. So this is where the damage occurs with COVID. COVID gets into the lung tissue cells. The body starts looking at it, says, I don't like these viruses in these cells, and I'm going to attack it, and I'm going to kill it. And this is what they call the cytokine storm in in COVID, where suddenly the immune system says, right, let's get rid of these viruses replicating in these cells. The cytokine storm causes an enormous sort of um, reaction and an inflammation 
um, the lungs become full of rubbish and then you can die of that. So if you can damp down the cytokine storm, you can reduce death rate from from COVID in that stage. But of course, the COVID virus then has got into your has got into your cardiovascular system, where it is going into endothelial cells around your body and in your heart, your myocardium, your your, your epicardium, your pericardium, your kidneys. Your kidneys have got quite a lot of ACE2 uh, receptors as well. So what happens is that the virus gets into these cells. The body starts to rev up. It sees cells that are infected because cells that are infected with the virus send out a message saying, I am infected. They send out a thing called a cytokine that's saying, I'm infected, please come and kill me because you want to get rid of the virus that's inside. So the immune system, once it's wound up, starts looking at the endothelial system and saying, right, let's let's get rid of the virus. And of course, at the same time, it strips the endothelial cells off and the blood clots form. And that is what is happening with covid and blood clotting and while i was writing this people were going how on earth can a can a can a respiratory virus cause blood clots and heart disease and strokes and like well it's the same reason as smoking causes it it's the same reason as as you know it's the same thing happening here so what you want to do is 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 obviously stop the body from having a real attack on the endothelial cells otherwise you're going to get blood clots all over the place that that takes us into very dangerous territory of well, do you want to be sticking spike proteins into people that get taken up by endothelial cells? Anyway, I think you can see that there is a could have been a concern there, which I did write about at the time. So essentially, what's happening is the endothelial cells that line your blood vessels are being damaged, and this happens mostly in the areas where the blood pressure and what you call the biochemical stress is highest. Another question that can never be answered by the cholesterol hypothesis is why do blood clot, why does atherosclerosis and atherosclerotic plaques, why do they never develop in veins? Because the cholesterol level is exactly the same, the endothelium is exactly the same. So why isn't it why isn't it being absorbed into vein walls? Why is it only artery walls? Now there is no answer to that question. The only answer to that question is that's clearly that's not what's happening. What is happening is is that where you have blood vessels that are under the greatest or the highest blood pressure, if you like, oh, it's not just blood pressure. So you say, why does it mostly happen in the arteries in the heart? Why is that the commonest place for atherosclerotic plaques to develop? Why there? Well, the answer is that the, the pressure, obviously the heart contracts every second approximately. And as it contracts, it squeezes flat the coronary arteries which is the name of the arteries in the, in, in the heart, such that blood flows in the heart only at the point where the heart relaxes, so the opposite way around from the rest of the body. Because at that point, the arteries open the heart open up, the blood can flow, then the heart contracts, then they're slammed shut. So actually, blood flow in the heart is, 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 is the anti-blood flow. But, but you can imagine, someone described the coronary artery is, is, is a bit like someone when it contracts, it's a bit like someone stamping on a garden hose every second. So these arteries are under terrific, what you call biomechanical stress, all the time, all day, every day. And therefore, the the the, the endothelium in, within them is also getting slammed and bashed all the time. So it's not if something is, 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 is damaging to the endothelium, then within the heart, it's going to be doubly damaging. And the other place where you can really get 
uh, most often get plaques is in the arteries in the neck, the carotid arteries. Well, of course, the blood came straight out of the heart, hits the aortic um, arch, goes to 180 degrees and then heads down the rest of your body. So at this point, you've got terrific turbulence and enormously high pressure going up into your neck. So when you look at it, where do plaques happen? Well, they happen in areas of greatest stress, if you like. And that would make sense because that's the area where the endothelium is under the greatest pressure and stress. And in the book, I sort of liken arteries to sort of white water rapids where the water is tumbling down and rocks are getting turned over by the force of it. Whereas the veins, you're, you're looking at sort of the delta valleys where it's moving slowly and sluggishly. And there's not a lot of stress going on here. I mean, the blood pressure in the veins is around about six millimetres of mercury on average. The blood pressure in the arteries is about 120 millimetres of mercury. They just measure it in this terrifically arcane way. So, so you've got to say it's, it's clearly got something to do with that, because if you take a vein from the leg, which has no atherosclerosis in it, and then put it into the heart and use it as a coronary artery bypass graft, within about seven to 10 years, it will have severe atherosclerosis in it. So what has changed in this blood vessel? Well, everything is the same. The cholesterol level is the same, and the level of everything is the same, except you put it into a different part of the body, which is at a higher blood pressure under higher stress. And in that situation, that is when atherosclerosis develops. So we have the answers. They're like staring you in the face. There are conditions where you have a hole in the heart particularly in the ventricles. And, and so the blood pressure that is coming out of the left-hand side of the heart that's supposed to go up the aorta goes back into the lungs, a high blood pressure. This is called Eisenmenger's syndrome, but you don't need to know that. And people who have Eisenmenger's syndrome also have a very high rate of atherosclerotic plaque formation in their lungs. And you do not get atherosclerotic plaques in your lungs unless you have raised blood pressure in your lungs. So it's like, guys, this is like, it's staring you in the face. Um, that it is to do with biomechanical damage to the endothelium. Once you've damaged the endothelium, there's a terrifically powerful message sent that, that the artery is damaged and you must form a blood clot here, right now, on this point. And, and that's what happens. Because the moment you strip endothelium off, you, you reveal uh, an enzyme called tissue factor. And tissue factor sits there, and it's like the red, it's just a sudden alarm. It says blood, blood clot here now. Because the body thinks the artery's been damaged. And if you damage an artery, you can bleed to death in whatever, a very short amount of time. So damage to arteries cannot be allowed to happen. Blood pressure, blood clot, bang. Blood clot forms. If it's not big enough to block the artery, and mostly it isn't, the blood clot has to stop very quickly. But then you have a blood clot stuck to your artery, and it can't be allowed to break off and go down and through the rest of your body because it'll just get stuck somewhere else, causing damage downstream. So you can't have the same situation as, you know, if you scratch your hand, you get a blood clot forms, and then you get a scab, and the scab falls off. Well, inside an artery, if the scab forms and the scab falls off, it's going to cause mayhem. So it can't fall off. So the only thing the body can do with it is to cover it over with a new layer of endothelium. 
and then basically it's incorporated into the artery wall itself. Now, of course, most of the time after this has happened, the body comes along and clears it away. But if you get a repeated episode of blood clot formation at the same point, the plaque will gradually grow. And and again, you can read papers in things, journals like atherosclerosis, where they've looked at people who've got atherosclerotic plaques in their in their arteries, and and then they've done um, angiograms on them over you know yearly for however long. And what they've found is that those plaques do not gradually increase in size. They don't just gradually get bigger and bigger as as, as cholesterol molecules all f- sort of fill into that area. No. What happens is they suddenly grow. Bang. They grow all of a sudden. And then they stop. And then they might grow all of a sudden again. So what's the only possibility that can be happening is that another blood clot formed at that point. It was covered over. It was covered over with endothelium. But it then grew because there was more clot left stuck in the same area. And there's plenty of journals, there's hundreds of journals that agree that this is what is happening. And yet they still will not agree that atherosclerosis is to do with blood clots forming one on top of another. And if you look at a lot of blood, a lot of plaques and you slice them open, they've got layers, layer after layer after layer after layer after layer, like tree rings. They don't all look like this, but about 40% do. And the explanation, and if you read the explanation, it's, well, obviously what's happened here is we've had repeated blood clots have happened at the same point and have gradually grown over years, but not gradually. It's happened, bang, gap, bang, gap, bang. And this is all widely accepted. I'm none, obviously, I can't quote reference. I'm not going to show you references here, but you can look this stuff up. So none of this is remotely controversial. And yet, still, you know, we have this stuck to, well, it's cholesterol that starts it off. So, well, how does it do that? They can't explain it. They can't explain it because it doesn't, because there is no way. Of, we don't have cholesterol in our bloodstream. We have lipoproteins, and the, the one that we're blamed for everything is LDL. And they say, well, the LDL molecules must somehow or other leak through past the endothelium, well, at one point. And nowhere else. So how does that happen? Oh well, it just does. You know, well, how does that happen? Well, it does. No, it doesn't happen because it can't happen. And even if it could happen, it doesn't make any sense. Because veins. The other thing that you know, unfortunately, you speak to doctors about this. That, that sadly, they know nothing. All big blood vessels have 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 are supplied by their own blood vessels, which sounds extraordinary, but it's true. They're called vasovasorum, the blood vessels of the blood vessels. So around your aorta, around your big arteries, around your big veins, there's a network of small blood vessels that move through the the, the artery wall and, and supply it with all the nutrients it needs. And without these nutrients being supplied by the vasovasorum, they, they would die because they're too thick to get oxygen and other nutrients through. And anyway, the, the endothelium blocks them coming through because that's its job. So so actually, it's and, and you can see that essentially it, this happens, is that all the nutrients and all the LDL and everything that the, the blood vessel needs come in from behind the artery, if you like, the opposite way around. And, and you can get as much LDL in that way as you want because it flows quite freely out of these uh, vasovasorum and into the artery wall. So why doesn't this LDL that can freely flow build up into plaques? 
Whereas the the LDL that can't get through the endothelium is the stuff that's supposed to cause the plaque. None of this makes any sense. If you start looking at it, it's like, nope, that is rubbish. That doesn't make any sense. They don't even bother to explain these things at all. And so equally, veins have more visorum than arteries. And if you do a, a coronary artery bypass, uh, you try and preserve the visorum in the vein because if you don't have visorum or you strip them off or you damage them, that, that bypass is more likely to get atherosclerosis than if it doesn't have the visorum. And the visa visorum is a thing that, I mean, everywhere you look at this, I mean, I realize that people think of visa visorum, glycochelic, so I'm getting all this new information. Well, this shouldn't be new information. This is just, uh, you know, one of the problems that, 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 that Rokitansky had in 1852 was that he didn't know there were things called endothelial progenitor cells, so he couldn't explain how a new layer of endothelium could grow. He didn't know there was such a thing as glycochelic. When the cholesterol hypothesis first came along, people didn't even know there were different lipoproteins. They didn't know there was LDL and HDL and VLDL and all these other LDLs. Yeah, yeah. So this, we have a hypothesis that we created when people knew almost nothing about the cardiovascular system. And with each new thing you learn, you realize, well, that makes the cholesterol hypothesis complete nonsense. And yet we still cling to it. And yet we had the hypothesis that worked in 1852. In 1947, there was a chap called Dugid, who J.C. Dugid, he was actually Scottish, but he he proposed an update of the of the of the of the incrustation hypothesis. I was taught by a cardiologist in in Aberdeen University who said that LDL cannot penetrate the endothelium, and that the cause of atherosclerosis is is pla- is, is blood clots transforming into plaques. I wasn't taught it as quite as clearly as that, but that's what I was being taught. So it's not like this is some completely out of the blue, never been thought of thing ever before thing. It's like people have been thinking about this for 170 years. It makes sense. It works. It explains how smoking can cause heart disease. Diabetes can cause heart disease. It explains how Kawasaki's disease can cause heart disease. It explains how, how sickle cell disease. It explains how... Autoimmune diseases can cause heart disease. It explains how cocaine can cause heart disease. It explains how viruses can cause heart disease. It explains how periodontitis can ex- can cause heart disease. Here's another one that everyone sort of knows is true. If you've got infection in your gums, gingivitis, and tooth infections, you're more likely to have heart disease. And so how can that possibly happen? Well, here's how it happens. It's because bacteria produce things called exotoxins. Exotoxin just means a toxin outside of itself. These exotoxins float around the bloodstream and attack the endothelium and attack the glycocalyx and cause blood clotting and cause heart disease. And we know this is the case because sepsis is the most extreme version. Sepsis is the most extreme version of, of a bacterial infection in your bloodstream. Because what happens is the bacteria get into your bloodstream and they start to multiply. And as they do so, they produce toxins, exotoxins. These exotoxins strip your endothelium and your glycocalyx. They cause blood clots throughout your body. And you know, when, you, when you've when you seen people who have had sepsis or meningococcal sepsis, they can lose their fingers. 
and they can lose their arms and they can lose their noses and their ears and the peripheral. And people say, how does that happen? Well, because blood clots are forming all over the body and they're forming in the, in the small blood vessels supplying your fingers. So your fingers die. It's exactly the same thing happening here as it is with COVID on a different level. In this case, the COVID is inside the blood vessel, inside the endothelium, and the body decides to attack the endothelium. The sepsis, the toxin decides to attack the endothelium and the glycocalyx. And of course, it's a much more acute thing. And in in um, in, uh, in sepsis, if you measure, if you use a device to measure the thickness of the glycocalyx during sepsis, the, the strongest predictor of survival in, in sepsis is keeping a glycocalyx thickness of a certain amount. And if your glycocalyx thins down to zip virtually, you're going to die of sepsis because your cardiovascular system is being obliterated. So the reason why I wrote the book really was to say, well, can you bring it all together? Can you make some sense of what we're seeing? Can you explain why, for instance, lead causes heart disease when, when it has nothing to do with the cholesterol hypothesis? Can you explain how smoking causes heart disease? Can you explain how diabetes causes heart disease? Can you explain how viral infections can cause heart disease? And can you explain them through the same process? And the answer is yes, you can. And people have explained it through these processes for years, decades, centuries. You just did. And, and I got to tell you, one of the greatest things about um, our podcast is that I learned something from um, specialists like you. So, I mean, that was very educational for me. Um, I was always very skeptical about cholesterol and heart disease, and especially as I just, you know learned more and more, and just look at the numbers. But um, now I have an explanation about why and some analogies like smoking and how can smoking and diabetes which have really nothing to do with cholesterol cause heart disease which we know that there's an increased risk of heart disease that's well that's a great you know a, a great analogy that we can use it's pretty simple to explain and then yet there's no cholesterol link with diabetes and cholesterol and, and smoking so Right. So I, I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Kendrick. You definitely educated me. One of our goals of this podcast, the biggest goal of this podcast is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And I think you're realizing that goal. Do you mind us answering some questions? We got some comments from some viewers. Yeah, no problem. If I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's go back to Amy. Uh, Steph, can you read that, Dr. Kendrick? Every patient has a an, uh, an MCG heart scan, I'm not sure what that is exactly. Um, I presume it's like a calcium heart scan, I'm not sure. Is referred to start taking Arterizol from Calroy Health. Um, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> you know what? It sounds like Amy has some products she's trying to promote. So let's go on to Jeannie, Jeannie Moore. She's a, She's been on our podcast before. What does this one say? <laughs> Doc Shen, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> but Jeannie, thank you. <laughs> and then James had another comment. Okay, what does Dr. Kendrick think about the hypothesis that uh, linoleic acid from seed oils may cause oxidized LDL? Yeah. 
Well, I'm not a great fan of um, uh, of any type of polyunsaturated fats uh, in in that. Well, not, not, I'm not hugely against them, but the, this oxidization of LDL is is another one is is a kind of desperate attempt to support the LDL hypothesis. Right. If LDL is oxidized, then it damages the endothelium, and then this is an answer as to is really LDL all the time. Um, oxidation um, is is. Yeah. I did. I've spoken to chemists about oxidation. They just laugh at this concept. But uh, essentially, uh, endothelial cells actually have specific blocks um, LDL receptors to take out oxidized LDL. They quite like it actually, and they use it for their for their um, for their cholesterol needs. Um, and the liver can get rid of oxidized uh, or damaged LDLs like that. It it it. I sometimes ask the question, it, you've heard of homozygous familiar hypercholesterolemia, you may not have, which is both parent, you get both, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, both genes for, for familiar hypercholesterolemia. So you have homozygous rather than heterozygous. That's about one in 250,000 people, where the LDL level can be about, uh, in American terms, in, in UK terms, it would be about 30 uh, millimoles, which is about, uh, 20 milligrams per deciliter, 25 milligrams. Per, anyway, vastly so high. Low, low, basically. No, no, usually high. No, I know it wouldn't be, it'd be it, sorry, it'd be five or 600. Sorry, I'm going. I'm, okay, that makes more sense. Okay. I'm doing my conversion the wrong round. Anyway, yeah. yeah, ridiculously high. Uh, and they die quite young, but I mean, let, let's face it. But if you if you do a liver transplant in a child with homozygous hypercholesterolemia, who has an, who have LDLs that are maybe twenty times normal? The 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 familiar hypercholesterolemia in their case disappears instantaneously. It's gone, right? And the reason for that is that they now have functioning LDL receptors in their liver, and the liver just pulls it straight out of the bloodstream and gets rid of it. So the oxidized LDL argument is is actually is just a a desperate attempt to support the LDL argument, in my opinion. And and when you have uh, all all the oxidization means is that the LDL has been hanging around in the bloodstream for longer than it would normally do, and therefore it becomes oxidized, which is a sign of other things happening in your metabolism. So you've got to watch out for that. So it's not a bad sign that something is going wrong, but it is not a cause of anything. Oxidized LDL. It's in the same terms as having a high uh, VLDL or triglyceride level and a low HDL level. All that that means is you've got insulin resistance and the body is struggling to deal with lipids in the in the liver. And, and it's a bad sign, but it's not a cause of anything. Um, and there's some recent papers have come out showing that heart, very high HDL levels are actually causal for heart disease. And they've had a new drug that came out, I've just forgot the name of, to lower your triglyceride or VLDL levels, and it made no difference to the rate of heart disease whatsoever. So a lot of these things come along, and you can say, ah, look at this, it's oxidized. And you go, yeah, it's not causing anything. It's just a sign that that LDL has been hanging around for too long in your bloodstream, and that's a bad thing because it means your liver is not dealing with the fats properly. That makes so sense. let's go back on that, a super high LDL. So you say those people die young when they yeah. have those LDLs in the 500s. Yeah. Um, 
what do they die from? Not cardiovascular disease is what you're saying? They, well, um, slightly ironically, of course, that's what they do die of. Now, there's a guy called Stevens, who was a New Zealand pathologist, who looked at these children uh, or young people who died and said, what is it they're actually dying of? Well, actually, when you have uh, homozygous familiar hypercholesterolemia, which means your levels are extraordinarily high, uh, it's probably more than that. It's probably what's what's the normal levels? Two hundred in the states, isn't it? So it would be thirty what? times. It'd be thirty times two hundred. It'd be six thousand, right? Okay, because a hundred a hundred milligrams per deciliter or less is considered a normal LDL. A normal LDL. So yeah. it would be it would be thirty times that. All right, so it'd be three thousand. Okay. Wow. So, okay. Okay. So we're talking about an incredible. What happens there is that the the, the actually the, the LDL starts to. And because I've talked to you about the vasovisorum, what happens is the arteries actually begin to entirely thicken up. All of your arteries thicken up. Your blood actually becomes hyper-clotty, very hyper-coagulable when the LDL is that high. And all sorts of other things are going wrong as well. So so they do tend to die of heart disease, um, but they die of a very different condition. It's uh, a storage disease, as Stephen said. It's not the same thing. The plaques are, don't exist. What you have is basically super hyper-thickened arteries and blood vessels and, and everything. So it's a very different condition. Um, and as I often say to people, if any other, if you had any other substance in your blood that was sort of 20 times normal, you'd be dead in about five seconds. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, to suggest that these people have any relationship. The only other thing, I mean, I've written papers about as well, is that the, the actually the LDL receptor itself has, it has some very important um, um, uh, processes it's associated with. It takes factor eight out of the bloodstream, for example. It has a considerable impact on blood clotting um, uh, itself. So it, it may well be with hypercholesterolemia of certain sorts. And, and, and in fact, we have written a paper about, about it, um, is, that, is that actually it's the blood clotting, is your hyper blood clotty, if you like. You're hypercoagulable if you don't have LDL receptors. And when you have a lack of LDL receptors, your, your LDL level goes quite high. But that's probably not, or not, in my opinion, that isn't the thing that increases the risk of heart disease. It's the cl blood clotting that it also goes wrong at the same time. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. I can't go into that now because it gets hyper-technical. But, um, but, so, uh, speaking it, of hyper-technical, so is there a way that wh – where is the best resource? Do you have on um, any of your blogs, if we want to get – into more some of these more technical things. Um, how do we find out more information on it? Right. Well, uh, like I don't, the, I don't the, tend to get super technical on the blog. I mean, the paper we wrote. Uh, I'm trying to remember the title of it now, which is uh, uh, it's F8 it, hypercoagulation in FH, um, which I co-authored with David Diamond, myself, Ophi, uh, and Michael Delogero. Um, I can flip that over to you because I'm struggling to remember the exact title now. <laughs> you write the paper, you can't remember what it's called. But uh, essentially, what we looked at there was, um, you know, that the, 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 there is a there's a small proportion of people with high, familiar hypercholesterolemia, which people talk about all the time and say, "Aha, these people are more likely to get heart disease." Uh, there's a registry that's kept in the UK called the Simon Broom Registry, and what they found is that a small proportion of people with familiar hypercholesterolemia quite a young age are more likely to die from heart disease 
and and people have used this as a you know and and the rate is is considered to be 500 percent increase in risk to which we've said yes but the actual number of people that they found was about 11 versus two out of ten thousand, which is how statistics are manipulated you know yeah absolute risk versus relative risk absolute risk versus relative Most companies do it all yeah. Well, what, what, they, what, what they don't go on to say is, yes, but once you reach the age of 50, if you've got familiar hypercholesterolemia, is that you are less likely to die of heart disease. So it's a bit like saying to people, if you smoke before the age of 50, you're more likely to get lung cancer. But if you smoke after the age of 50, you're less likely to get lung cancer. But we still tell you that smoking causes lung cancer. It's like, right. Well, you can think that if you like, but I'm afraid you're going to get no points in my in my logic course in that one. <laughs> You're just going to get don't say stupid things, um, God. Um, and also, of course, uh, as I've also said about familiar hypercholesterolemia, it's a terrible disease. It gives you no symptoms whatsoever, and if you've got it, you live exactly the same length of time as somebody who hasn't got it. So that's a, a really serious disease to suffer from. It 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 causes no problems whatsoever, and you live just as long as everybody else. So in what way is that a disease, precisely? Um, well, if we name it a disease, then we can treat it with a drug. Well, and, well, well and they, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm being facetious, but we're on the same page. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really what it is when you, when you look at, you know, statins. And pretty well, much anybody over 60 years old, most traditional doctors will put somebody on a statin, even if they don't have high cholesterol, because no. they think it's going to prevent cardiovascular disease. But it's well, an outright yeah. lie. Well, I mean, and now if you've got diabetes, which like everybody seems to have it now, I was just looking at a paper. Was I was actually asked to peer review a paper from Taiwan where they looked at people with cholesterol, who had diabetes, and what their cholesterol levels were, and what the rate of death was at different cholesterol levels. And the highest rate of death uh, in people with diabetes was at the lowest cholesterol level, lowest LDL. They actually measured level. And this was over. This, is, this paper is covering about sixty thousand people over fifteen years. It's the first time anyone's ever looked at it. What did they find? The lower your cholesterol level is, the more likely you are to die. So there's just. And now, what's the advice to get your cholesterol level as low as possible if you've got diabetes? Yeah, right. I mean, come on, guys. How long can this be maintained? I don't know. Forever. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's you know, as healthcare professionals, we have to start educating people about the realities and absolute risk versus a relative risk when it comes to studies and that they can control their lifestyle and their outcomes. Yeah. There's no magic drug that you're going to take to prevent cardiovascular disease no. or to prevent diabetes. No. Diabetes is not a drug deficiency. No. Well, type 2 diabetes is not a drug deficiency. It's a diet-related issue. It's yeah. a carbohydrate metabolism problem, and you need to change your diet. Yes. There is no drug that's going to fix your diabetes, period. Now, if you go down the traditional road, you'll be on drugs and, and listen to the traditional doctors. You'll be on drugs the rest of your life. Will you live longer? No. You'll probably no. die earlier. Yes. Uh, and and you'll, 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 get, you'll get fatter and fatter with most of them. All those exactly. newer ones. Yes, the really expensive ones actually seem to have some impact on making people a bit lose a bit of weight. But yes, I mean, the advice for many years has been, it chase your sugar level with your insulin, you know. It's like, it's, it's, right, and giving insulin to a type 2 diabetic is like putting gasoline on a house fire. <laughs> Literally, they have enough insulin. It's just not working. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It is, it, it, well, it, it's not crazy if you want. I mean, 
I was looking at the the, the pharmaceutical companies and their their uh, which markets they think are going to grow the most over the next ten years. And diabetes is number one. Well, I think it was twelve percent expansion per year for the next ten years. It's going to be worth one hundred eighty billion a year in ten years' time or whatever it was. I just looked at it and thought. This they see as a cause for celebration. I'm like, so. I, I know. And just think, we can change that by just changing our diet and our lifestyle. Yes. And, but they don't want that. The of system. course, they don't want that. You know, I, I'm I'm very friendly with David Unwin over here. You probably heard of him. You know, he he did a study on his patient about 100, 200 patients in his practice where he got them to to eat a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, and I think. 60% of them reversed their diabetes. The drug costs went down by 100,000 per year in his practice alone. The weight loss was something like 20 metric tons between 20 of them. I mean, it's, you know, and still, and still, we get, well, you know. I know, and it's just, you know, it, it's because of the traditional system and traditional doctors just not wanting to believe that things could be reversed with diet. And no. I constantly am debating with with doctors all the time about it, and pharmacists. And I get some haters out there on social media oh, that tell me how crazy I am and say that the type two diabetes is not reversible. And this is this is the challenge that I give them: if you want to see if type two diabetes is not reversible, and and if you're on medications that can severely lower your glucose, like insulin, don't do this. But um, very carefully, um, go on. A, a fast for 20 for 48 hours yeah. any type 2 diabetic i challenge him to go on a fast for 48 hours i guarantee you without being on medications your blood glucose will normalize yeah. i guarantee you right well of course it will it must do yeah. <laughs> physiology says it will exactly i mean right it's just logical but yet we don't do that we tell them to eat every four hours we tell them to eat an 80 percent carbohydrate diet we tell them to turn their insulin up or take more drugs it's like uh no it's a diet problem yes well it yeah uh, well diabetes i mean i think the, the, you know uh, my interest in diabetes came in part from my interest in 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 cholesterol because obviously there's the, the reason why people are told to eat this High carbohydrate diet is because when the diet hypothesis gained foothold, it was well, a saturated fat causes heart disease, and diabetes diabetics in about the mid late seventies were found to have much higher rates of of heart disease. So well, we must stop them eating fat and saturated fat. So that's when they changed it over to saying, well, they must start eating carbohydrates because that will stop them getting heart disease, and, and so the whole thing links together horribly it's, it's kind of like you know i've used the analogy of the of, of the, the the geocentric model versus the heliocentric model which is you know people said the earth is at the center of the universe and everything rotates around it and um, and once you've decided that that diet and saturated fat causes heart disease and it's cholesterol then then you create a whole a galaxy of nonsense that all rotates around it. So of course and if you get rid of that thing in the middle then you have to say well all of this starts to fall to pieces. So they don't want all of it to fall to pieces right. because there's huge sums of money involved in all of this and reputations and blah, blah, blah. So, so you know, you're not going to get a rapid change because if you pick this the particular jumper, if you pick one of the strands from it, the whole thing just goes poof. Right. And everything falls to bits and then right. they're, all, they're all left going, so it was all bullshit. 
And that's why some people are so strong about not moving the needle about it. Yes. You know, they just, well, that, that, and cardiologists, especially, are some of the worst. They don't because they realize that if if they don't, if they stop believing that cholesterol causes heart attacks, then whatever they've done for the last thirty years is a problem. Yes. Well, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, I remember the first time I came across um, this sort of defensiveness was in was actually in breast surgery. I was a medical student and the professor at the university was well renowned for being the the radical mastectomy king you know he removed the old breasts and everything he could find that could be removed in all directions leaving women horribly mutilated and a demon in their arms and everything and i, I was reading i read an article in, i think it was the bmj and it said that this doctor in holland had tried less radical um surgery and and the the, the results were of survival and whatever were were, were as good and and the the damage and the the mutilation was far less, and therefore it seemed to be a good idea. And I mentioned this paper to this professor in a kind of grand round, and um, basically he went completely apeshit and stripped me to shreds in front of about thirty other doctors, and and tried to humiliate and crush me. And I thought, oh well, I, I thought I won't be doing that again. Um, but. Uh, Clearly, I mean, this was his. This is what he did. This was his job, uh, and now I'm saying you shouldn't be doing it. And uh, you know what you're saying to him is, you've been mutilating women for thirty years of your life unnecessarily. He's not going to immediately welcome you with open arms. So, you know, it's not just a money thing here. There's a gigantic sort of, oh my god, how dare you even suggest that I have been doing stupid things and damaging people. Well, it's not going to go down well, is it? So these are not people that are ever going to change their minds. You have to start the changing of minds elsewhere because other people may be more open. It's not so important to them. So they're more open to seeing the facts, if you like. Right. Well, I always go back to the story back in the late 1800s, I believe, maybe mid-1800s, when a, a medical student dared to question that Doctors were killing their patients because they weren't washing their hands. Yeah. And he got blackballed. And yeah, that was, that was, I look at it. I know. The famous we know the Hungarian Semmelweis, 1840. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, because you're not going to... And this is a huge problem, is that the people that are in the positions of power and authority are the people who stand to lose the greatest amount if this stuff is proven to be bullshit, well, it has been proven to be bullshit. But, um, uh, and therefore, you know, your average person on the street goes, well, this professor of this and the American society of that and the European society of this, and, and they all say the same thing. And you, are, you, who the hell are you? Who the hell are you? You're a GP. You're a family physician. What do you know about cardiology? Well, actually, he says, I sometimes think to myself, though I really say it, I've forgotten more about cardiology than you will ever know. <laughs> well, I do know quite a lot about it, actually. Um, but, you know, people don't appreciate it when you when you tell them that they're being stupid, I find. Um, so you just have to laugh a bit and go, you know. That's right. It's, it's eminence-based medicine we're suffering from, isn't it? That okay. Eminent, and you are not, and so therefore you're exactly. wrong. And, and, and if there's anything the last three years have taught us, that's completely what it's been. 
is well, you, you're nobody's an expert. There's only a few experts at the top, and if you don't listen to them, then you're crazy. Yes. And you're a conspiracy theorist. That's the if we can take anything away from the last three years, we can definitely take that away. Yeah. Well, I would send you to look. There's an article that uh, the, the man who more than anyone was responsible for bringing evidence-based medicine into the world was David Sackett from from um, McMaster in Canada. Uh, he worked at Oxford. I met him a few times. Really, really nice, brilliant guy. So he wrote a couple of articles uh, saying that, that uh, basically he thinks that experts have far too much influence. They should all shut up and be retired every three years because they have too much. People pay them too much attention. In fact, he, although he was an expert in evidence-based medicine, said, "I'm not going to write, review, lecture, or talk about this subject ever again." because people pay far too much attention to what I have to say, and they don't question me, and they just fall into line. And I think this is terrible, and it's stopping things from developing. So ironically, the one expert who should never have retired, retired himself. <laughs> right, right. Uh, there's a catch-22 here somewhere, isn't there? Um, but the rest of them, they love being in their positions, and they pontificate, and they stomp on people who disagree with them. And I can understand human nature to do this but by god what we need is for people to to understand that expertise is a wonderful thing knowledge and expertise is a wonderful thing but experts are very often the worst thing especially when something new or different comes along that you need you, you need to these people should just be put in a box and said you're fine yeah okay but, you know, that was 20, 30 years ago. We're now talking about now, all right? right? And now is not then. You're an expert because of stuff you learned about when you were starting off. And you spent 40 years becoming a, a world expert in it. Great, well done. But, you know, as, as Feynman said, science is a belief in the ignorance of experts. And and yet we all seem to have lost sight of this somehow or other, haven't we? You know? <laughs> So, Dr. Kendrick, I appreciate you being on today. As we wrap this podcast up, um, I'd like to ask you, what do you have a passion for? I think it's been relatively obvious, but go ahead and tell us what, you have, what your passion is. Well, what I really want to do is to, um, I'd, I'd like to see medical research, um, what's the word? I wouldn't like decorruptificated, um, um, opened up, and I would like to see um, the, the systems I, this is quite a big subject, all right? <laughs> but I think medical research is is close to broken, right? Um, and that's a really scary thing um, because what happened? What, what happened with COVID is a number of people began to think we're being told this stuff and it's rubbish. I mean, I've known for years that a lot of stuff we're told is rubbish. Um, you know, I've, I've been a, I've been a fake newsman for thirty years, but uh, the opposite way around. Um, so. Somehow or other, we have to regain um, trust. Well, a lot of people trust it, unfortunately. We have to almost demolish trust in the system as it is and put something else in its place that is a better system. I want to trust medical papers when I read them. I want to believe that when a medical expert speaks, it's not because they've got somebody's hand up the, their ass you know, controlling them from the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. Um, I want organizations like the AHA, the ACC, NIH, CDC to be freed from or, or to be purged from commercial interests as much as is possible 
we're entering a very scary time, I think, uh, with with uh, with medical research. And, and what I really want to do is to see how we can clean it up. Awesome. So if anybody wants to reach out to you or has any questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, I've got a blog, drmalcolmkendrick.org. If you write a question on that, uh, which you're showing up here, if you write a question um, on there to me as an email, I'll get it. Uh, and um, and if I decide it's a sort of reasonable question, I will respond. If I think it's a, a bit of a lunatic question, I'll, um, I'll probably not respond um, and decide that, that this conversation is not going to continue. Um, so, yes, that way uh, uh, people can also, if people um, comment on blogs that I do, I will I do respond. I look at them all. And, and um, sometimes I've had like 2,000 comments on a – I've had 2,000 comments on some of my blogs, which gets a bit – time-consuming at times but um so so yes i i do like to, to to debate have a debate with people love to discuss it and uh and that's that awesome i love it dr kendrick it's been an honor and a privilege to have you on i really appreciate you taking okay. the time thank uh, you sorry about our little technical glitch hey <laughs> no worries it worked out i didn't know if we we're gonna get you back on so i am so glad that you were able to get back on and uh we'll have to uh thank bill gates for the blue screen of death it's been common since uh, Windows has been developed. Uh, that's the first time I've seen it for about a year or two years. Right. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Kendrick. Listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday, our regularly scheduled podcast, 12.30 to 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. We'll see you then. Thank you so much. Thank you.